If you've got a Bible with you, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. Even if you haven't got a Bible with you, we're still going to be in Luke chapter 13. Uh, We're going to be uh, continuing our series, working our way through Luke's account of the life of Jesus. Uh, If you've been around for the last month or so, you'll be aware that we've landed in a section of Luke's story uh, that, uh, let's be honest, is pretty grueling, isn't it? In fact, Uh, If it wasn't for our commitment round here to teach systematically verse by verse through this whole book, probably, if truth be told, we would have been tempted by now to take a bit of a break. Uh, Probably a break at chapter 11, verse 14, and rejoin the story after today's passage, which very helpfully is headed in the NIV, Repent or Perish. Uh, That's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's be honest picture we get in these verses doesn't really fit with the caricature of Jesus that people nowadays like to live with, that he just kind of floated around spreading pixie dust and love and peace wherever he went. I mean, all the time you hear people, don't you, saying things like, well, the Jesus I believe in would never judge anyone. Jesus wants us all to be happy, so he wouldn't mind me doing this. Of course, Jesus would accept this point of view. He's so accepting of everyone. It's like we've created such an insipid, weak, watered-down version of Jesus that it's no wonder that nobody takes Christianity seriously anymore. If all Jesus really ever does is go along with the current popular thinking then he has become utterly, utterly irrelevant. Now, the Jesus we encounter in today's text is altogether different. By no stretch of the imagination could he ever be referred to as insipid, weak, or watered down. What he says is difficult, painful, bloody, and potentially offensive. But if it's true, it is also highly relevant for every single one of us in this room right now. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Let me just pause and give you a bit of a background to what's going on here. The only celebration where a Jew back in the first century would have killed their own sacrifice was the Passover. And so it seems like there were a group of Jews in Galilee celebrating together the Passover when, for whatever reason, Roman soldiers attacked them, gutted them, mixed their blood with their sacrifice's blood, and poured it out on the altar. It'd be the equivalent of some sort of governmental authority storming into this room right now and slitting our throats and pouring our blood over a cross. That's the equivalent to what's going on here. If you remember from last week, Jesus has just condemned those who don't know how to interpret the current times, who look at what's going on in the world around them and are clueless as to what's happening and why it's happening. 
And so presumably, these people in the crowd listening to Jesus are telling him about this pretty barbaric massacre of the Galileans to see what possible spiritual significance Jesus thinks there could be in it all. Have a listen to Jesus' response. Verse 2, Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Now, what's he getting at here? Well, I think Jesus is attacking a very popular idea both then and now. It's this idea that if you are good, then good things will happen to you. And if bad things happen to you, then there must be some kind of wickedness in your life. It's as though you must have brought it on yourself. And so if everything is fine right now in your life, then God must be really pleased with you. It's the idea of karma. You get what you deserve. Now listen, I can't see how anyone can buy into this thinking. I mean, are you seriously, seriously telling me that your whole philosophical belief system is that good things happen to good people and bad things only ever happen to bad people? I mean, have you ever been outside? Uh, Have you ever switched on the television? Uh, I, I don't know what your life's like, but nothing in my experience backs up this kind of thinking. And Jesus here would tend to agree. Jesus is attacking this whole idea. He goes, do you honestly think that they were worse sinners than you? And look what he says in verse 3. I'll tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. I'll tell you, this is one of those texts, one of those passages that makes it very, very, very hard to keep this image of Jesus just always being friendly and sweet. That didn't sound particularly friendly. Certainly didn't sound particularly sweet. Let's keep reading, verse 4. Or, Jesus adds, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But, unless you repent, you too will all perish. So now you've got one calamity, one horrific, barbaric calamity that's down to a wicked man saying, I want them killed, and soldiers obediently carrying out the order. And then now you've got another instance where really is no one's fault. A foundation crumbled, a tower fell on men, women, perhaps children, killed them. In one, that there was a pretty wicked man. In one, a building just collapsed. And Jesus says, do you think that the victims are worse than you? No. And so these men and women who were worshipping and had their throats slit, and these men and women who were just passing by the tower in Siloam and had it collapse on them, They were normal, everyday people. They weren't more wicked than you. They weren't more moral than you. They're just normal people. They were like the 250,000 people 
back in 2004, who one morning woke up, put sun cream on, and went out to some of the most beautiful beaches on planet Earth, not knowing that an earthquake in the middle of the Indian Ocean was about to send a 50-foot wave to snuff the life out of them. Well, like the 298 men, women and children who just this last week got up Thursday morning, boarded Malaysia Airlines flight MH17, oblivious, totally oblivious to the horrific fate that would befall them. They were like the Ukrainian New Frontiers church leader who one day last month called his wife to say, I'm on my way home, gets caught in a rebel ambush and doesn't make it. Jesus refuses to go along with the view that these things happen because those people are horrible sinners. It's not that they're being punished. Now, of course, that raises all kinds of questions. I mean, if God's in control of everything, then why on earth does he allow these things to happen? How can we talk of a God of love when he doesn't step in and prevent such calamities? What possible good could come from such tragic circumstances? Now, those questions are very, very important. If you've been around the church here for any length of time, you'll know we certainly don't shy away from dealing with the whole issue of suffering in the world. And if you are here right now, today, and you yourself are grappling with those kinds of questions, we'd love to chat with you some more after the meeting. But Jesus doesn't go there in this passage. He doesn't pick up on these questions at all. Instead, he uses the occasion to give a very, very serious warning about an even more fundamental issue. The threat of a tragic end is present for all of us. The issue isn't whether death will happen or why. The real issue is whether we will avoid a terminal fate with even greater consequences than these. What Jesus says, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now please, here's what Jesus isn't saying here. Jesus isn't saying that if they don't repent, a building's going to fall on them as well. Or or they're going to have their throats cut. No, not all of us are going to die that way. Fortunately, we're not all going to die horrifically. So, So what does he mean when he says, unless you repent, you too will all perish? Well, I suggest the comparison that Jesus is making here is between dying tragically in this life and perishing ultimately before God. It's like these natural tragedies trumpet loud and clear the sheer fragility of human life. For the Galileans, 
and for those who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Death snuck up on them. They weren't prepared. They weren't ready. It's like the alarm went off, just like it does every Monday morning. They got up and took a shower, and they sit down to breakfast with their families. They eat together, grab their briefcase, hop onto their camel, turn on the air con, head down to the tower in Siloam, sit at their desk, building starts vibrating, and then they're dead. Unprepared. Death snuck up on them. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I see where this is going. Are you going to try and use scare tactics on me now? No, I'm not. Hellfire and brimstone preaching is just a stupid, stupid idea. Heaven is not created for those who are afraid of hell. It was created and established for those who love God passionately and long to worship Him forever and ever and ever, who long to be with Him through all eternity. Listen, you cannot scare anyone into heaven doesn't work that way. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But all I'm trying to do is what I think Jesus is trying to do in this passage. I'm warning you that death is going to sneak up on us all. And the whole point of the warning is to make sure we are ready, to make sure we're prepared. Let's be honest. For most of us, it's not actually so hard to believe that death is going to sneak up on us. Like, ten minutes ago, I was doing my A-levels, and now I'm 43 years old with two teenage children. In five years' time, both of them could have left home. That's pretty shocking. I mean, how did that happen? I still remember them starting nursery and everyone who we knew who had kids who were just that little bit older coming up to us in the playground and saying stuff like, well, in the blink of an eye, they'll be gone. Um, thank you? I mean, why on earth do people feel the need to do that? I mean, have you noticed, I digress slightly, but if you've ever been pregnant, how people love saying stuff like, just you wait, Everything is about to change. 92 hours in labor, followed by no sleep for 18 years. You're like, whoa, why? No, breathe, calm down, stop. I I, I don't quite know what you're trying to accomplish here. But okay, yeah, I I get it. Everything's about to change. Uh, I'm about to start walking around like some sleep-deprived zombie for years on end. It'll just be a second and then they'll be gone. I get it. Here's the thing. If everything else sneaks up on us, don't you think that in a moment you are 70 or 80 or 90 and your life is gone. Like, have you ever, 
hit the information button. Don't know if you've got it on your remote control, I have on mine. Information button on a show that you're watching that, I don't know, you've, you've loved for years and years and years. And it displays on the screen that it came out in 1986. And you're like, no way. There's no way that came out in 86. I mean, it, it seems like just yesterday that you first saw it. It's been 28 years but you can still smell the popcorn in the cinema that you first saw Top Gun in, which probably shows my age and something. What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> so for everything else, sneaks up on us. Do you think that it's a far stretch to think that in just a moment you are 70 or 80 or 90 in a bed gasping for air? And that's only if you aren't killed on the way home after the meeting or you don't get diagnosed with an incurable disease. Some of you are like, would you please stop now? Can't you please take me to a happy place? Listen, genuinely, not trying to scare you in any direction because it's already flagged up it it doesn't really work that way just trying to be honest this is how life works and Jesus says unless you repent you too will all perish He's saying that these men and women died unprepared but intrinsic within that is that there is surely a way to die prepared And Jesus says, if you're going to be prepared, you must repent. Now please, I want you to feel the force of this. There is a very real urgency here. This warning couldn't be more serious. Failure to repent leaves you terribly, terribly exposed in death. And so, what Jesus means by repent is surely paramount here. Here's what repentance isn't. Repentance isn't remorse. Remorse means we're simply feeling sorry, usually sorry about ourselves or sorry for ourselves and sorry that we've been found out. Repentance isn't remorse, neither is it merely reform. It's not saying, I must try really hard to make myself better so God will now accept me. I must really try harder to be fruitful for Him because ultimately you can't reform yourself in your own strength. True repentance means not only a recognition of my sin and a willingness, not only a willingness in fact, but a desire to turn from living for myself as number one, as ruler over my life, but also a turning to Christ. That's why I think Jesus started his public ministry with a very simple message. His message just had two words, repent and believe. There's a turning from and a turning to. There's a turning from, just living my way with my agenda, how I want my life to work out. No consideration for God's will for my life. Not really any great consideration for how my life influences or affects others either. A turning from that to 
Christ and a recognition that his death on the cross has covered all of my past. A turning to him, not only receiving his gift of forgiveness, but uh, turning to him in worship and submission for the rest of my life. I now want to walk towards him. I want to honor him with the way that I live my life as a turning from and a turning to. And there's a very, very real urgency to this. Because beyond this life, we can be sure that a day of reckoning is coming. I want you to have a listen to the story or the parable that Jesus tells right on the back of this to drive the message home. Let's pick it up again in verse 6. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it because he didn't find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig round it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So Jesus here, talking largely to religious men and women who are thinking that their behavior has brought about the favor of God and the bad behavior of others has led to their destruction. Jesus to this crowd is saying, you need to repent. And here's what you need to repent of, your fruitlessness. It's like you continually believe that your moral achievements are somehow building up for you a storehouse in heaven, regardless of the fact that all of your righteous acts are the equivalent of filthy rags to God. You can't do it by yourself. You need help. All of your goodness, all of those little things that make you feel better about yourself, that you believe are going to bring about some sort of favor from God. Jesus is saying in this parable, you think that that's the fruit I want? It's not what I'm after. The fruit that I want, the fruit that I am looking for is the fruit of genuine repentance, worship and submission, a life lived for my glory. That's what I'm after. And then he says, look, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. It's not like this is a hasty decision. The tree has been given plenty of time to produce fruit. I've done a bit of background reading on this. But within three years, a fig tree would reach maturity, and if it was going to produce fruit, would have, by this point, produced fruit. Three years it's been given. No fruit? Jesus says, cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? What happens? When faith becomes to you merely a list of rules to follow, what happens when this is all it is for you, church for an hour and a half, once a week, when you can fit it in? What happens when you don't grow into joy and worship of Him, 
when you don't grow into a love and a reverence for God's transcendence and his power and his might and his glory, but instead you're merely busy the whole time trying to impress others, wearing a mask, trying to look better than you really are. What happens is you begin to use up what Jesus would call here his soil. It's like you begin to pull precious nutrients from others. Your very life ends up being a contradiction to the gospel. It's not good news at all, and it's confusing. And Jesus is going, cut that thing down, and I'll plant a tree in its space that will bear fruit. So that's what he should do. He's fully within his rights to judge the tree and pull it out. But then look at what he actually does. It's as though there's this righteous indignation, disgust in fact, towards the lack of fruit. But then at one and the same time there's this patience in the middle of it that goes, okay, give it more time. Give it another year. It's like we get this graphic picture of, on one side, God's displeasure and judgment alongside his patience and his mercy. Now, don't miss this. The fact that the fig tree wasn't cut down there and then didn't mean that the owner had forgotten it or that in any way he condoned its lack of fruit. It was more a case he was merciful and gracious. Similarly, the fact that God prevents his judgment from striking us here and now isn't to be mistaken for a sign of his impotence or his lack of interest in our lives or that he's condoning what's going on beneath the surface in our lives. No, you need to take it as a sign of his mercy to you right now. You know, even now he's looking at our lives, hoping to find the fruit of genuine repentance. And where there isn't any, he's constantly giving us chances to amend our lives, chances to respond to his grace, chances to turn from living our way and turn to him. I'll tell you what this sermon really is all about. This sermon, more than anything else, is once again God engaging you, God reminding you, God grabbing you, giving you a bit of a shake, warning you. Like like what we're doing here right now, what what, what I'm trying to give you is the equivalent of the fertilizer that Jesus refers to in this parable. Now I know that for some time some of you have thought that the preaching around here was a load of manure. Well you're spot on. This sermon is manure. It's supposed to fuel your growth. It is meant by God to push you to chat. Some people are tweeting that even now. I see you pulling out your phones. It's meant by God to push you, challenge you, press you. Are you bearing fruit? Are you just an observer of this great face? Are you an observer or a participant? You see, there is a difference a fundamental spiritual difference. So you've got the 
wrath of God towards those who despite the cross, despite all Jesus has done to make a way for us to receive forgiveness, despite all of that, are still trying to be good enough, still trying to earn salvation on their own terms, or those who are simply complacent or disinterested or indifferent to it all. And then you've got the patience of God, the incredible patience of God going, I'm slow to anger, abounding in love. I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to draw them into my presence on a Sunday morning. I'm going to have someone speak to them. I'm going to challenge them. I'm going to convict them. I'm going to do it again and again and again. But there will be a day. Let's paint it for you. There will be this day where where God has been consistently speaking to you. He's been challenging you again and again and again. And you're like, okay, yeah, I know. Get around to doing something about it at some point, I'm sure. And there will finally be a day where it is just not there anymore. Comes a time for all of us where we simply run out of opportunities to respond. Like it or not, we live in a world that is under the sentence of death, a world that is perishing around us, which is why Jesus gives us this warning in verse 3, and just in case we missed it first time round, reiterates it, repeats it again in verse 5, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus is saying, if you want to read the signs of the times, if you want to understand what's going on all around you in the news, this is the supreme message that these things bring from God. Every single disaster spells out the same warning. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to meet God? Are you? Because unless you repent, the day will come when you too will perish. It's like Jesus is saying, it will be you one day. Listen, we all have two appointments that we cannot avoid. We can't put them in our diary. Don't know when they're going to come, but every single one of us will keep them. There's the unavoidable appointment with death and the unavoidable appointment with God. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. And I don't know, and you don't know when it's going to be. But they will happen. And if we die unrepentant, if we die unforgiven, we will perish spiritually as well as physically. We'll end up being cut off from God forever, separated from His love, His light, and His life. And it's the mercy and grace of God that we get opportunities like this one in the here and now to respond with repentance and faith. To have that assurance deep down. To know in our hearts that whatever happens, whatever's around the corner, we are right with God. 
Our sins have been forgiven. That's why we can sing, Oh, happy day. There's joy in it. There's assurance in it. And that if that appointment is just around the corner, we'll go through death into the presence of our loving Heavenly Father who will receive us with wide open arms as His dearly beloved children. If we've done what? If we've repented. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Are you ready? I want to close by reading the words that one of the people in the crowd listening to Jesus bring in this warning. Words that he wrote several decades later. They're found in 2 Peter 3, verses 9 to 13. Just want to read these words to you that really summarize what I've been trying to say. And then we'll pray. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Peter writes this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. If you're able to, I'd like to invite you to stand.